Well, we had so many Ask the Pastor questions, we didn't get to them all. And I can't remember where I left off. I did Ishbosheth, right? I did that. Did I do the Holy God deceiving? I did that. I think I did. Did I do Psalm only? I think I thought I did. And I, did, I didn't do disposing of Bibles. Uh, this is the kind of question. Let me read the question. What is the proper way to dispose of Bibles or, or Bibles in disrepair? You know, I don't have a biblical answer for that. Uh, so it's just my opinion uh, is what you're going to get. I, I don't think I've ever thought about that uh, before. In my view, there's nothing wrong with putting an unusable Bible in the trash. It sounds bad. But it's not a, it's not a sacred relic. It's not a talisman. It's the message that's written on the page. Uh, but I think the question does reflect a good view of the sanctity of God's word. But we don't see the object itself, the object as an object, as 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 being you know particularly holy in that sense. It's the word that's written on it. So I have so like most of you, I have so many Bibles. I don't know that I throw. I, I just kind of accumulate them on the shelf. Is what I is my actual practice. But that's not out of conviction. Um, Here's a question about remarriage in Mark 10, 11. And we're going to get to this. We're in Mark 8 when I get back from... I'll be in Costa Rica this Lord's Day, so pray for me as I travel Saturday to Costa Rica. I'm preaching there, and I'm doing a conference at a seminary. I sh- I'm due back on Thursday, so I appreciate your prayers. And then we have the missions conference, so it'll be two weeks till I preach Mark. So we're in Chapter 8. We'll get here before too long. And here's the question. Is remarriage appropriate in light of Mark 10, verse 11? where Jesus says whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I have to say, of, of the sayings of Jesus about marriage and divorce and remarriage in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, this one sounds the most severe, but it's mainly because of the brevity of it. Uh, and here's where we have the principle that we interpret Scripture by reference to Scripture. If Jesus says it's a little bit more elaborate in one place, and he says something, that's not in contradiction with what he says there. And particularly in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, where the same episode's recorded, Jesus establishes adultery as a biblical ground for divorce. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, the word for sexual immorality is porneia. It is true that that is a, a, the word itself is a general sexual indecency. But I do think we rightly take that as referring to the violating of the marriage covenant via adultery. Uh, there's other things that we do that might be adulterous in principle. I certainly hope our husbands aren't ogling other women. But that's not grounds for divorce if you catch your husband doing that. It is Grounds for the doghouse, but not for divorce. <laughs> or your wife doing that too. I don't want to. But um, it's adultery. Now, I've heard people say before that there's no exceptions. God hates divorce. Divorce is never permissible. There's no exceptions. Let me give you a hermeneutical rule. When the Lord Jesus uses the word except, that what's about to happen is going to be an exception. And when Jesus says, except in the case of adultery, that means while the rule is very clear, God hates divorce, as he quotes from Malachi. And Jesus says, it was not, you know, this is not the way God designed, uh, when he says, and they shall be one flesh in Genesis 2, that was not with divorce in mind. But where there's been adultery, there, uh, that is grounds 
for divorce. It doesn't require divorce. But, and, the, and, and the key thing is that the victim, the innocent party in the divorce, has the right of remarriage. That's what's going on there. And you get this language uh, in, in other places where it says, in that case, the innocent party is not bound. That's technical, that's, that's biblical times legal language saying they have the right of remarriage. So we have had some members of our church, not a lot, but we've had some go through divorce. It's always very painful, very lamentable. And when the Christian, when the, when the, when the Christian is the victim of adultery, they have the right of remarriage. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, the Apostle Paul says, if the unbelieving, he's talking about marriage and divorce. If the unbelie- and his argument is don't divorce. And I, I, mean, I want to say right now, our wedding vows should weigh more heavily upon us than our generation takes it. Even as Christians, we should loathe to divorce. Now, I, I, I know there's people who are divorced. I'm, not, I'm just saying our generation, even in the church, we, we create rationale for divorce in ways that I, I think exceed the Bible. But here's what the Bible says about that. If the unbelieving partner separates, be it, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, the ESV says, is not enslaved. I, I think the NIV is better here. Is not bound. The Greek word is luo. It means they have the right of remarriage. Now, what's Paul saying? Paul is in a different situation than Jesus was when he answered that question because Paul is, is in the Gentile church. And the biggest problem they had was, well, it was not a problem. They had Gentile women converting to Christ and they were married. And in many cases, their husband kicked them out. And so that's kind of the main situation in which Paul handles this. Now, in various other times, the English church had this in a big way because your, your husband would go to the Navy and you, you never see him again. Uh, uh, the American Navy is not as brutal as the 1805 British Navy. But it was a big, church, big problem in, say, the Puritan churches. Uh, the press gangs took my husband and I haven't seen him. How long has it been? Seven years. Oh, whoa. I mean, you know. So where the unbelieving uh, uh, person is, uh, is, is not willing to live with you and sues for divorce, then in that case, you, you are not at fault for the divorce. That is the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Now, it is true today that that principle in our churches is applied to severe forms of marital abuse. I have to say I've learned not to really like the word abuse because what does it actually mean? Uh, And and, uh, we've had some lawyers in the church who've told me that every time there's a divorce in in courts today, there's an allegation of abuse. So what does the word mean? It needs to be, but it needs to be pretty severe. In fact, I I would argue when Paul says, um, if the unbelieving partner separates, that's an unbeliever. If the church is going to grant the right to divorce on the on the separation on the abandonment by abuse, there needs to have been an excommunication. Now, I'm speaking in principle. The, the reality is the session deals with case by case, and it's amazing how much variety there is. But we are not we do not eagerly grant divorce, of course, the right, which is really the right to remarry. Now, we've had some people who have been in every one of these categories, and it's a blessing to them that the church, responding to the scripture, I remember one man in the church, 
And I wrote him a letter on behalf of the session for his father-in-law, who was very concerned, and said this man's wife abandoned him without biblical cause. She and the person I'm talking about was excommunicated by our church for having done so. And biblically, we believe he has the right of remarriage. And and the father-in-law really appreciated that the church made that statement. So while the language of Mark 10, 11 is very sparse, so I'm going to go back to that. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, when he says in the other passages that there are these exceptions, then that person is not held at fault, and there is not a biblical stigma on the victim of adultery or abandonment. I do think the case for the Christian who commits the adultery or who, or who, who abandons the partner their case for, for remarriage, I'm not so sanguine about. Uh, there are, I think there's cases where we have to say, well, I mean, the Bible does not really... So I don't, the thing is that the, me, me, I, and the elders, we don't make the rules. Jesus makes the rules. The Word of God makes the rules. And I do think that there are cases where the circumstances by which one broke his or her covenant renders them unable to be remarried. Uh, under what Jesus says here. So we're to take our marriage vows exceedingly seriously, even when you discover that you're married to a sinner who disappoints you. That's when you learn what love is, right? And uh, I don't mean to trivialize difficulties, but that's what our generation needs. And, and these are the biblical grounds for divorce. The overwhelming teaching is that we're to be faithful to our marriages. Isaiah eleven six to 9 assumedly refers to the new heavens and earth, a new earth, in saying the wolf shall, lie, shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Yes, I think certainly it does. It is referring to the, the eternal age of glory after Christ's return. How should we understand the references to the nursing child and the weaned child in verse 8? Will not everyone in the new heaven and new earth be an adult? So how will that passage be fulfilled when that in, in the age of glory, the you know the lion will let, the, the lion will lie down with the lamb, and a little child will, will lead them, and it includes the language of the nursing child, a little toddler baby. Well, in general, we do not look for a literal fulfillment in heaven when the Old Testament prophet is speaking symbolically in this sense. Now, there are those who believe in a literal rendering of Scripture in such a way it's a wooden interpretation. This, this is actually kind of a classic passage. That that means the lion, well, there'll be lions and, and, and lambs lying next to each other, and there'll be little babies leading, you know, and, and the scorpion and the, and the nursing child will, will be together. Actually, I agree with the question. It doesn't seem to me there's going to be infants in heaven. Uh, and it's, of course, I don't know. I mean, the truth is, if you die as an infant, do you remain eternally an infant? Well, I can't think of any biblical examples. But I think when, when you read Revelation or 1 Corinthians 11 and it talks about the glorified body, that seems to be a mature body. So I think the indication is that our glorified state, I, I certainly hope it's not my current body. Well, it's going to be glorified, so it can't be my cur- current body. It has to be a better version of my younger body. Um, but here's an example where, and you'll get this, and we've got another question that's going to come up with this, where the prophets are speaking, they're creating a picture for their people that is culturally intelligible to them. But they're not, but the scripture does not then fix that so that the 
age of glory requires that picture to be fulfilled. It's the thing that's picturing. What is that picturing? The shalom of God. A creation at peace where in the, in the, in the, in the, in the age of glory to come, sin has been dealt with. We are, we are, we, no one will be a sinner there. The, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's at the very end of that very passage. And so it's the peace of God described by Isaiah in terms intelligible to his people, but it's not the details of that. It's what that is picturing. Uh, and, and this is one of the re- differences we have with our dispensational friends because they, they hold to a literal interpretation of Scripture, which means that these things have to be physically fulfilled, which is one of their arguments for the premillennial position because you have to have a time when this literally happens. I think exegetically it's, it, it's, it, it, there's a faithful spirit to it, but I think exegetically it's kind of missing the boat with that. Uh, we'll see that with another one. So... Uh, I don't think the nursing child will physically be playing over the whole of the cobra in heaven, but that's the picture of it. And we're going to get, and not surprisingly, we're going to get a lot of Israel-Jerusalem questions. I'll probably get some next time. Could you please speak to the everlasting covenant mentioned in Psalm 105 and how it relates both to Israel today and in the days mentioned in Revelation? For instance, Revelation 21, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Well, we take the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and Jacob, which is what's referenced in Psalm 105, to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the promised offspring. And so the, the, the promise of the land and the seed, and you get various versions of that, uh, is, that should not be taken as, say, the Zionistic movement does. That Israel has a right to the physical land of Canaan because God gave them the right. Well, no, those promises, as Paul says, are yes and amen in Christ. And so, again, they're pointing forward. In fact, the land and the seed goes all the way back to Genesis 1. You have the creation of the, of the, 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 the living place, and then you have the people to inhabit it. The first three days are the land. The second three days are the people. The Revelation 22, you have the eternal city and you have the, the eternal church. So that structure is in there from the Bible. It is all fulfilled in Christ. And so in Psalm 105, when God speaks of remembering his covenant forever and of an everlasting covenant, we see this fulfilled. This is in terms of its intended fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God did not break, break his promise when Israel lost control of the physical promised land. In fact, the book of Jeremiah does comment that they nullified those promises by breaking the old covenant. So whereas I have, I think there's a lot of reasons to be very sympathetic to Israel and to the Jews, that biblical reasoning that that God gave them, you know, the the heritage, the covenant heritage, forgets what happened in John twenty, John nineteen and twenty, where the Messiah was rejected and the consequences and and the reason that the Jewish people, for whom I have great affection, the reason they're scattered over the earth is because of the judgment that God leveled on them in AD 70, including the destruction of Jerusalem. So God did not break his promise. They broke the covenant. God's promise is fulfilled, as Paul says, in Christ. Um, It is clear in the New Testament that 
that the Christian church is Israel. As Paul says at the end of Galatians, he refers to the church as the Israel of God. And so the, the, the holy city of the book of Revelation is the end time city consisting of the saints of all ages. And in fact, when, when one of the things that dispensationalism does is it argues that God has a completely different project for Israel and then a completely different project for the church. Well, that's odd because when you get to Revelation 20, 21, that, which this question is asking about, uh, you have one holy city and the 12 foundations are the 12 apostles and the 12 gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now that's indicating it's just one of any number of ways in which the New Testament indicates that it's, it's one covenant project. There's one people of God, which means that when you and I read our Old Testament, we're not reading somebody else's spiritual experience, redemptive experience. That's our people. That's the church in the Old Covenant. And so, um, so uh, uh, also in, in Romans 11, Paul talks about the Gentile Christians were grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And so again, uh, the covenant people is in Christ. And there were lots of Jews. All the apostles were Jews. But Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant promises. The church, Israel, is, is, is Christ and his people. Which leads to Romans 11.26. Regarding Israel, could you help explain Romans 11.25 to 36, especially verse 28? Oh, I hope I do verse 28. Uh, Revelations 11.25 and 26 says, now bear in mind, starting in in Romans 9, Paul is saying, if God is sovereign, he's been teaching the sovereignty of God, well, what happened to Israel then? Why didn't the promises come true for Israel? And he explains the thing I was just talking about, that the true Israel is never the Israel of the flesh. It's the Israel of faith. Uh, and then he starts talking about these relationships. And he says at the end of the chapter, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Particularly that statement, all Israel will be saved. Now, among the Reformed today, there's two ways to take that. And one way uh, is to say, I think, uh, uh, well, this is Calvin's view, for instance. It says, well, all Israel will be saved is another way of saying all the church will be saved. And, you know, all the Jews who are going to be saved are going to be saved as Christians. That is theologically true. I'm persuaded that the other view is what's actually being said that we should expect a widespread ingathering of Jewish believers before the return of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is essentially where Paul is in his argument. What, what Calvin says about verse 26, Paul's already said. But when he gets towards the end of the chapter, I'm persuaded that uh, uh, he's referring to uh, a future end, time, end times gathering of Jewish people. Now, verse 28 then should be taken as the rationale for that. He says, the Jews are enemies of the gospel, but they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What does Paul mean in AD 62 when he writes Romans, AD 61, that the Jews are enemies of the gospel? They're persecuting the gospel. They are opposed to the gospel. Uh, But notice when he says they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, surely at a minimum that indicates that God hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't forgotten their connection to Abraham. That's the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, that, that connection 
It still it doesn't mean that by being Jewish you're saved. The only way to be saved is believe in Jesus Christ. But I don't know how else to take what Paul says at the very end of that argument that they are they remain beloved for the sake of their forefathers, even though they're enemies of the gospel. I do believe that Romans eleven argues for and this we, uh, Christian witness to Israel. This is their big verse. This it is that belief, and that I would say it was Spurgeon and his friends. I think who started this ministry that we still support are laboring to that end for the evangelism of the Jewish people. Uh, Acts 2, 17 and 18 interprets the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So Acts 2, that's where the Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit comes. And Peter explains it by reference to the prophecy of Joel. In fact, Jeff Early is going to preach on this Sunday evening, so... And one of the things it says is your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Well, this seems to be prophetic activity. So how do you understand these visions and dreams that are, which, which Joel prophesied and Peter at Pentecost said that prophecy is fulfilled? How do you take that now? Uh, charismatic and Pentecostal brothers will say that means exactly what it says. That's what the Bible says. And it means what it says. It means that if the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have prophet, you will engage in prophetic activity. And they would include speaking in tongues as part of that. In kind of extreme cases, you're, you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. That's certainly not all who hold that, that view. But that's what it's saying. You, there will be prophetic dreams today that your teenage daughter may prophesy at the youth group, and it's a prophecy. What are we, what are we going to say about that? Well, again, Joel, or P- Peter is explaining what has happened at Pentecost by reference to a prophecy done many... In fact, Joel's interesting, as Jeff has pointed out. We really have no idea when it was written, except for it's pretty early. Or late 9th century, something like that maybe, but it's pretty early. Uh, and he's prophesying a day to come when the Spirit will come, and then he's going to describe it like Isaiah in Isaiah 11. He's going to describe it in terms that were intelligible given the redemptive setting in which he's writing, which is the, the prophetic activity. Uh, and when one of his points is the whole church will have the Holy Spirit and there will be a, the prophethood of all believers, one of the great Reformation doctrines. But yet again, we, we're not taking the phenomenal, is that, is that right? The phenomenal, the phenomenal, I guess that's right. The phenomenal description, which he's making, I don't know, 920, maybe 870. Joel's really hard to date because we don't know when the plague was. Um, so the phenomenological, that's phenomenological, uh, aspect of what he's describing is not the issue. It's what that is describing, namely the prophethood of all believers. Now, how do we know that? Because when you look in the book of Acts, you don't find this. You don't find this. You don't find in the New Testament that the church is growing because everybody's making prophecies. The, the only dreams you have are rather exceptional situations to the apostles themselves. And so the prophetic activity, the actual giving revelation from God, by the way, we would understand that prophecy in that sense is not exhortation. Most charismatics today, I think, to be charitable, when someone gives a prophecy, 
you know, they're, they're not treating it as revelation. You know, I stand up and I give you a prophecy. We're going to, in some cases, they'll have an open mic and you get up and you prophesy. And a man will walk up and he'll say, you know, I want to prophesy on the Lord's behalf that husbands should love their wives. And I want to go, that's exhortation. That's not, we actually already have that. Uh, when we speak of, of prophecy, we mean new revelation. In that sense, the canon is closed. The, the apostolic age brings an end to that. We do not believe that there is prophecy of that nature, the, the canon being written, the Bible being written. You hear the voice of God by reading your Bible. And that's how God, God spoke to me, chapter and verse. That's how it works. Because that's the description we have now. I was actually talking to Jeff. I don't want to ruin his sermon. I said, Jeff, you're preaching this this weekend. So what, and one of his arguments he's going to make, I think it's very helpful, is when you look at Jesus' description in the, in the farewell discourse of the Gospel of John, John 14 to 16, when the Holy Spirit comes, here's what's going to happen. He, Jesus does not say, oh, by the way, you're going to get revelatory dreams. Uh, no, it's going to, it's the Holy Spirit will cause you to understand the Scriptures. That's what he says. He will take the things of mine and he will deliver them unto you. And the apostles will be able to write the scripture. But the way that the prophethood of all believers, which Joel is describing phenomenologically in his context, is fulfilled in our age by a witnessing church, a Bible reading church, a Bible preaching church with ministers preaching sermons and Christians holding Bible studies and youth group learning the Bible and you saying to your neighbor, hey, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. But it's the whole, the thing Joel's emphasizing, it's the whole church that's engaged in, in the prophetic activity uh, as a result of Pentecost. So, so what happens if someone has a vision today? Well, I want to say we should not ordinarily expect revelatory dreams. I think it's really interesting. In, in Acts 16, when Paul gets the vision of the man of Macedonia, even the apostle Paul gets a vision, and then the next morning he, he gets together with Luke and Silas, I think it was Luke and Silas, and says, let's prayerfully consider that. Paul's like, I had a dream last night. And they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, uh, let's, 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 let's prayerfully consider. They didn't. They were, they were careful about just jumping to the sudden out. In that case, he did receive a dream that was given him, but he that's in his prophetic activity. We should not expect to get revelatory dreams. Now, you come to me and you say, you know, Pastor, I hear all these stories about Jesus appearing to people in the Muslim world. That's what we're being told today. That in these groundbreaking, high-intensity mission fields that Jesus is converting people by dreams, I, I can accept that. But they're going to be exceptions. I, I, I'm really, it's impossible for me or anybody else to render a definitive judgment on your subjective claims unless your subjective claims are completely at odds with Scripture. Now, if you say, Pastor, I went to heaven and I got a tour of heaven. Remember the, the heaven tourism books that were all the rage about 10 years ago? And I'm going to tell you what I saw. I go, time out. As Paul tells us, that's not what happens. So there, there are times when your subjective claims are untrue. But in general, it's very hard to argue with someone's subjective claims. We should not, in any ordinary sense, expect to get revelatory dreams and visions. We should read our Bibles. And when you look at Jesus' description of the, the life of the church and what will happen, what will be the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's regeneration, it's illumination for the sake of understanding the Holy Scriptures. And then 
the church to preach it, and for the people to witness it. So while the, I, I, now that I've, I got it right, I just want to say the word. At the phenomenological level is not where the action is. It's what he's depicting using the phenomenon of his own time. Is that helpful? That, that really will help you deal with a lot of, of, of that stuff. This is my last question, and I love it. It's a great question. Was the American Revolution biblical? Uh, that's not the question. That's my title for this. Somebody wrote me a question. How come you rephrase the questions? Because I'm the one? Because I, I can. <laughs> because I'm trying to, that's me trying to be as helpful as I can be. Uh, how does Romans 13, 1 to 7, submit to the emperor, submit to the civil authorities, which teaches civil authorities are instituted by God and should be obeyed, respected? How does that align with Christians supporting the American Revolution? What about Christians living under unjust governments? How can God ordain unjust governments? Okay. It's true. Romans 13, 1 to 7, we need to have that in mind. Uh, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's just the first two verses. But all seven verses say that your civil government was instituted by God, and you should obediently respect it. And you go, oh, only if they're good. Now, Paul's talking about Nero. That's his emperor, almost certainly, when he writes that. Um, that is the principle. I remember, uh, oh, 10, 15 years ago, when we got a, a liberal president elected and our elders were praying for him. And I had to actually say to some of the elders, feel free to pray for our president's conversion, but try to be respectful. Don't, don't pray about, Father, we pray for that rascal in Washington. <laughs> That's probably not as respectful as Rev. Moments, whether the whole church thinks that or not. The elders probably shouldn't talk that way from me. We need to be respectful. And so the question is, if that's true, how did Christians justify the rebellion? Well, the answer is it was a massive controversy at the time of the revolution. And this is why you had Tories. A lot of the Tories, the American colonists who sided with the British, did so out of biblical conviction because of Romans 13, 1-7. There's a, a legendary uh, systematic theology professor at RTS Charlotte, Doug Kelly, and all the RTS guys are absolutely devoted to Doug. I didn't have him, but I've gotten to know him. I love him too. And his family were all Tories. And, uh, they've, and he literally lives on the farmland that his ancestors had prior to the American Revolution, but they really suffered, you know, because they were Tories. And the reason they were Tories is they were convicted over Romans 13. And that was one of the big issues. And to such an extent that the church at the time that did support the revolution, George Washington and whatnot, they had to really articulate their position. And there is a, the Reformed Church believes in the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. That's the essence of the answer. Uh, that lower officials have a duty to protect the people under them from the tyranny of a higher magistrate. First guy to really develop this is Calvin, because one of the things that's happening in the Protestant Reformation is among, among the things they're rethinking coming out of Catholicism is church and state relations. And it's particularly the books of Judges, Samuel, and Kings is where you're going to get this material. And they, I think, correctly, Calvin does kind of a rudimentary version of it. John Knox has a very development sense, and it's really impacted the Presbyterian Church. In fact, the American Revolution in England, who knows what the American Revolution was called by the king? 
the Presbyterian Revolution, because of the Presbyterian argument in favor of the revolution by means of the lesser magistrate. If you're a lower official, now that's mainly going to be the colonial assemblies. That's going to be the Continental Congress and the, the assembly of the state of Virginia. And so if the king is going to tyrannize the people, and what really tipped them over was when the king sent his navy and he bombarded villages along the coast and he burned and slaughtered the people, that was when they went, that's it. And so the argument of the Christians, and I think it's right, is that the lesser magistrate has a duty to protect the people under him from the tyranny of the higher magistrate. And when your lesser magistrate's doing that, you may have the duty. There's certainly a legitimate aspect to that. Now, give me a biblical example. Okay, Obadiah. I, I didn't think of this until after I'd written my slides. When Elijah shows up, what chapter? You're doing, what time? First Kings 19, 17, earlier. So it's the beginning of Elijah. So Elijah shows up at Samaria, I guess, and, uh, and wicked King Ahab, and he runs across a guy named, uh, uh, I just said his name, Obadiah. Obadiah is like the chamberlain, it's like the court official to wicked King Ahab, and he's telling Elijah, oh, I'm, I'm sneaking people out. And I'm, I've got a cave where I've been hiding the prophets. So there you have the lesser magistrate rebelling as he's able against the authority of the higher magistrate, and God endorses that. That's a really good biblical example of that. Uh, John Knox used Jeremiah a lot, Jeremiah chapter 37, particularly when Jeremiah meets with uh, the, the, the Jewish king Zedekiah and says, oh no, I've told everybody to surrender to the Babylonians. Remember that from our Jeremiah series? And the king's like, uh, why are you doing that? Oh, because God told me to do so. And, well, I know you can't do that because I make the rules, I'm the king. And Jeremiah goes, well, you make some of the rules. You know? But when God gives me a revelation, I say that whether or not what you say. And, that, and, and, and the principle is, particularly when the moral law of God is being violated flagrantly by a tyrannical higher magistrate, godly lesser magistrates have a duty to rebel. Now, one thing the whole Reformation is agreed in, that you, you, you don't have anarchy. And so if you don't have a lesser magistrate defending you, then you need to pray for a lesser magistrate. But you don't just take up your gun and declare your house a sovereign state and barricade your door. You're going to get shot and we'll have a nice funeral for you, but we're not going to justify that. It's the less God establishes these magistrates, that is a reform view. That's why the American Revolution was called the Presbyterian Revolution. I have to, I have to, I have to admit, as you can tell, I take a lot of joy in that. It's a reform doctrine coming to the cause again. Um, so what about, I'm a Christian living under tyranny. Well, you are not to be a revolutionary. You're not, you're not you as you are not to be a rebel. And so if you're living in China under Z, you're trying to, and this is what's going on right now, you're doing your best to, to be a good citizen under tyranny, or if you're Paul under Nero. And sure, I mean, uh, you're, 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 you, know, you, may, you, you may hide people, you know, you're going to hide this, you're, you're not going to support the persecution, but you are, the church is not, does not have the mission of overthrowing the tyrannies, the political tyrannies of the world. And in general, Christians 
You know, live it so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. But if there is a legitimate lesser magistrate, well, then you have the right to support that person. A, a good modern example would be, let's say the President of the United States, whoever he is, uh, passes issues of presidential edict. What are they called? Uh, that's what they are. Executive order, and it's contrary to the Constitution. That would be a tyrannical thing. And let's say the governor of South Carolina goes, hey, we ain't doing that in South Carolina. If that's right, in principle, our reaction would be to pray for the governor and support him. It is the lesser magistrate's duty. And in the United States, the law is the Constitution, the ultimate law. And so if the president, whether he's Republican or Democratic, seeks to issue presidential orders that are violating the, the rights of the Constitution, and if your lesser magistrate, which would mainly be the governor, does that, I say we pray for him and support him. That would be what that doctrine says. So last question, why would God establish, if God established government, which Paul says, there's no government that God himself did not establish it. That's why you don't respect Nero, you respect God by obeying him. How could God do that? Well, uh, as judgment. One of God's judgments on the people is to give them wicked rulers. And often in his inscrutable wisdom for the sake of his glory through the gospel. Uh, you think of Joseph. The wicked ruler was the new Pharaoh who did not remember. You know, or, and, and, the, and all that happened to Joseph. What does Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God sinlessly employs sin for the glory of his gospel and its grace. And so it is not a scandal to us that God sovereignly establishes governments and some of those governments are evil. In principle, don't be a godless people because don't expect, you're very likely, I mean, if you look at America, and you've heard me say it before, people say, do you, do you think God will ever judge America? And I go, biblically speaking, what do you think has been going on? Most of our lifetimes. And, and wicked government is an aspect of that judgment, but God has other purposes. That doesn't change the principle. We're to do our, we're to show respect to civil leaders. We're to honor them. I don't, I, it bothers me biblically when, you know, there's some political leader we don't, we, 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 we think is a problem. For Christians to speak contemptuously of that person, we ought to refrain from doing so. It is God who has made Joe Biden president of the United States, just to pick the current president. And that should put a restraint on us. Now, feel free, if, if you are so inclined, some of you might be, to argue against some of his policies. You have the right to do that, but we should do so respectfully. And we, we are not... Oh... I was saying to respect the president. I have my mic back. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> we're, we are not revolutionary. I'm done. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. I bless your people. Cause us to be wise with discernment and be with each of us as we go our way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.